Hi, this is Benjamin Light. And this is Marcus Parks. And this is a kind of special episode of the Bros Watch PLL2 podcast. We're joined right now by Brian M. Holdman, uh, one of the writers for Pretty Little Liars. How do, everybody? <laughs> Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's such an honor. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. You guys are fantastic. I love your recaps. And uh, I am looking forward to talking with you today a little bit about the show. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, uh, let's jump on in. We've got lots of different questions. Marco, you want to go first? Uh, well, we sent you some kind of pre-questions, Brian, so I thought I would hit you up first with something that wasn't on the list, kind of a gotcha question, which <laughs> is, uh, popovers versus empanadas, if you had to pick one. Oh, my goodness. Um, empanadas. Okay. Even, even Emily's empanadas? <laughs> I would take Talia's empanadas over Emily's. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> I still don't know what popovers are, personally. A popover, it's like a savory, um... Well, it's like a savory baked accompaniment to a meal. It's very old fashioned. Hmm. Um, think of it as like a, a dinner scone. That sounds like a very Pamfields. It sounds kind of like kind British. Of yeah. Uh, I think it, I think it is British in origin. Okay, like a meat pie. <laughs> I would love for Ezra to get smart and hire Pam in the kitchen. You know, she's, she's not working for the police anymore. She would be great at the brew. Yeah, Pam. Pam could. Pam could use a job. <laughs> Well, she was a homemaker for a while, wasn't she? She was. It was Wayne's extended absence that sent her back into the workforce, I think. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're kind of we haven't we haven't we haven't really touched upon Pam's what's what's how Pam is bringing home the bacon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we, we haven't seen Pam and Ellen in a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess they're out of town. They're always on grocery shopping or doing mom things in right. those episodes that we don't see them in. Sometimes they're just hiding from their children. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was reading online that one of your first like like writing gigs on TV was on Everwood, thanks to working with Greg Berlanti on an adaption of Julius Caesar. So yes. I was I was kind of interested in how that came about and what it was like coming into TV, doing a script for Everwood, and how that kind of you know informed like how you became a TV writer. Well, um, so Everwood was my very, very first uh, experience as a television writer. It was a freelance during the fourth season of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Greg Berlanti is a, is a college friend of mine. We met our freshman year during New Student Week um, and also participated in a creative writing program uh, during our last years of college together and uh, then moved to L.A. and were neighbors. Uh, so we have been in touch for many, many years. Um, and after that adaptation, um, kind of a little bit out of the blue, they were looking to hire a couple of freelance writers for the fourth season. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Greg, who was not actively running the show everwood at the time, but he was the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, gave a sample of my writing to the, uh, showrunner at the time. Her name's Rena Mamoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and after being read, I was invited to write one of those freelances. Um, one of the wonderful things about that experience, uh, was that Everwood had a lovely, uh, creative environment, um, and a very, uh, a very nurturing kind of energy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had this wonderful experience to come and sit in for two weeks in the writer's room, uh, to watch them break a story of their own, the episode before mine, mm-hmm. which helped mm-hmm. because then I was kind of privy to, all the story that I would be picking up and moving forward. Mm-hmm. And um, it gave me the opportunity to, so I was, I was, I was learning kind of how a room works from a really, really highly functioning uh, 
room of creatives. And I was also learning the, the energy of a writer's room, uh, how to be in, in a writer's room, which is, uh, it's it, both of those are things that I carry with me to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, we break story in the pretty little liars room in very much the same way that I learned on Evers on Everwood. So when I was hired, um, and once we got into that room, we very quickly discovered between Oliver Goldstick and myself and, uh, and, uh, Maya Goldsmith, um, that we all kind of spoke the same language of story breaking, which was really helpful in getting mm-hmm. the room up and running in that first season. Mm-hmm. And then in general, just, I think the energy that I learned from Everwood, I have carried with me. And I think it's one of the thing, things that makes me, uh, hireable, um, <laughs> because I've got, I've, I've got, um, you know, you, you don't get, you don't get sick and tired of me after eight hours. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And then uh, it looks like you joined the, uh, Vampire Diaries writing staff. I did a few years and a few shows later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there any difference in joining uh, that writing staff or is it kind of the same vibe? Uh, well, you know, much like my experience on Kyle XY and, uh, the, and in fact, most of my uh, writing experience has been on shows that are staffing, uh, once they've been picked up to series. Mm. So I've always been on the initial staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that first year is always a huge process of discovery, really figuring out, uh, from a creative standpoint, what is the series? Mm-hmm. Um, what what are the stories that we're going to tell? What feels like this world? How do we expand and grow this world? How do we all get on the same page? Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, one person creates a show and then a staff is hired to support that initial vision. So there is um, a bit of everyone kind of getting on the same page in the first season. And then also from a, a production standpoint, it's about learning what makes a producible episode and then kind of trying to hone in on that on that formula enough that every episode um, stays within format, stays within uh, budget and, and uh, makes the show producible week after week, season after season. Interesting. Yeah. Cause that was one of the things that we're very curious about uh, is just how, how the writer's room works year to year. Um, you know, we were talking about, we do, obviously we don't, you can't tell us anything about season six, but we were very curious just, how do you come into a new season picking up, you know, the toys and stuff you left behind the previous season and just like, like you guys just came back not too long ago to start season six. Yes. How do you, how do you come back from like your, your summer break? Well, you know, the, the first few weeks back uh, for us are very, uh, the picking up the toys is a great, is a great analogy because we do sort of take a look back. One of the first things we did was watch uh, episode uh, 525. <laughs> uh, just to refresh our memories because we had all been away for a couple of months at, that, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So just to remind ourselves, okay, where did we, where did we leave things? Um, and just the process of watching that episode brings up all kinds of important questions moving forward. Uh, it brings up uh, little dangling chads that we maybe forgot to fully address or would like to take the opportunity to flesh out more. Mm-hmm. And the first few weeks of conversation are very, very macro. Uh, we, we talk about where we want to start and we talk about where we want to finish. And then we set about talking about broad strokes of how do you think we'll get there? And it's a matter of laying down really interesting, exciting, big plot points along the way. And in a very general sense, 
figuring out, well, where does it feel right for us to hit that point? Mm -hmm. And where does it feel right for us to turn the mystery on its head? And where does it feel right for us to begin ramping up for those last few episodes towards our mid-season finale? So would you say you guys are planning out the broad strokes of a whole season right from the start? You don't kind of go episode by episode? Oh, no, no, no. We 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 start with the broad strokes of the entire season mm-hmm. up front. There's a, a need for us to stay soft set a little bit mm-hmm. uh, because multiple things happen along the road with production that if you're too firm, it can really derail everything. So we'd like to say soft, stay soft set enough that if we want to add some some fruit to the jello down the road, we can. <laughs> and also, if we need to pick stuff out, mm-hmm. we can do that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is why we stay broad strokes for the first several weeks. Uh, then once production begins to approach, we start breaking individual episodes. And that's where we get more micro. And what you notice in that process is that sometimes things that you think are going to exist in the first two episodes... We may have way too much story to get to those things, and they slide down the line a little bit. Hmm. Alternately, we may find that things that we think are going to be the long, the long con that we're going to play out over six, eight, ten episodes, when when we really start getting into specifics, there's only a couple of episodes worth of story, and so those things become very accelerated. And all of those big, big strokes that we've laid out, they they can shift from time to time as we start breaking individual episodes, hmm. and as we get deeper into that process and the production train starts going uh it just it becomes more than anything while staying true to the to the big picture being very aware of what we actually have to pick up and carry just from the previous episode and put it in place so that the next episode can take place okay um so for example like you guys in case any of our listeners don't really get how the writer's room works as a group you'll break an episode but then how does it how did like you get assigned to a particular episode or you just say i want this and then how does it become uh the group of writers you know ideas to you alone writing ah that's a good uh that's a great question um at the towards the beginning of the season uh there is a delicate sort of um a delicate sort of uh, uh, matching process <laughs> that goes on on Pretty Little Liars. Um, we take a look at, and, and this is mostly what Marlene and Oliver and Joe do, along with uh, Lisa Cochran, who's our line producer. Um, and they will sit down and they will take a look at um, the director schedule mm-hmm. who we have slotted in for individual episodes. And then they will look at the writers and uh, try and match match them up and 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 make a good a good pairing for a, a happy sort of uh, <laughs> bountifully creative partnership mm-hmm. for that a couple of weeks that you're working with the director. Um, and then there's a little bit of just personal and life schedule. Oliver Mar- and uh, Marlene are both uh, working on other projects as well. So they a- a- also are keeping in mind their availability for other things, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. their need to meet other deadlines. And somehow when all of that gets thrown together, we get a schedule uh, very close to the beginning of production, which tells us where we will be in in the lineup. So I already know for season six that I will be writing episode eight and I will be paired with uh, Larry Reebman, who's a first time director for us, but he's also our director of photography. Oh, uh, yeah. so, uh, it'll be it'll be fun uh, working with him where he's wearing a different hat. He directed one in season five, right? The uh, Ari and Mona watching Strangers on a Train. I think it was oh, right before that one. I, uh, yeah, I know he has one credit. Forgive me if I'm 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 forgetting that. 
Oh, it's a it's a fascinating episode just because you can tell the camera is having a great time. Like he does some interesting like setups. Yeah. Um, which yeah, we were we were watching it. We were kind of doing a little research when we did our episode about it, uh, where we saw that he was a director of photography. It was his first time episode, and we were we were just thinking like we're definitely excited to see him do do more to tackle mm-hmm. more in the captain's chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I cannot believe that totally slipped. That totally, it, totally slipped in my mind. I think it's also the, correct me if I'm wrong, Benjamin, the Caleb and Toby intervention episode. Oh, gosh, I'd have to look it up. You yeah, the, I, I remember yeah. one shot in particular where the camera kind of loomed in through the outside of Ezra's uh, apartment. That was yeah. the, the shot I remember most from that. Yeah. But so if you're doing episode eight, one thing we've wondered is, does that mean you have, say, more time than the person writing episode three? Or is it all kind of you're just busy with other stuff until it's, it's uh, your no, turn? It's it's um, the when I'm not actually writing an episode, um, I, I my, the, the, the bulk of my work is in the writer's room, mm-hmm. helping other writers uh, break their own stories. Um, and it is staggered out in a way that uh everybody gets just about the same amount of time to write a script as mm-hmm. everyone else generally how the process goes is the room is pitching as a group mm-hmm. um pitching stories sometimes pitching just little character moments sometimes pitching funny things for you know spencer to say <laughs> <laughs> um and we're all kind of narrowing in on what the narrative for that particular episode will be again starting macro um, typically a writer will come in knowing these are the things that I have to build on and this is where I want to get to. And uh, different writers approach it different ways. Sometimes they will come in with the broad strokes of a complete story. Sometimes they will come in with certain images that are very, very striking to them, uh, given kind of the material, the raw material that they're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the episode in, uh, oh golly, it was season four with the... Uh, with the wedding expo that Mrs. DeLorenzo oh, yeah. <laughs> was throwing. Um, Oliver came in at the start of breaking that episode with, I just want to get these girls into wedding dresses. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of this event as an organizing principle for the structure of the episode, but the story of how to get us there and how to use that event as an obstacle to all the sleuthing the girls had to do, that was a lot of what the discussion was about. Mm-hmm. So... We will have this discussion for sometimes a couple of weeks, narrowing in on uh, stories that are uh, driven by the four girls. That changes a little bit when Allison's in the mix and when mm-hmm. Mona is kind of a little bit more actively on the PLL side, which her allegiance always changes. So mm-hmm. you can, right. um, And once we get close, what we do is we start to write on um, color-coordinated cards uh, each girl's uh, story scene by scene, just a few sentences on each card for what the scene's about. And then we start playing with scene order and really building a compelling um, episode that has drive from beginning to end and within each act, um, having scenes that flow nicely from one to the other, that make sure all of the girls and uh, their storylines are well represented throughout, um, making sure that we have really exciting act breaks so that every time, you know, we cut to black, you're going to want to come rush to the bathroom and come back as soon as possible <laughs> to see what happens next. Uh, this might be kind of a lame question, but do all the girls get the same colored card each episode? Uh, it, it was randomly established in season one. And yes, they okay. are in season six. They are still the same colors. Uh, uh, a tiny little fact. Uh, Spencer is blue. 
Okay. Um, Aria is uh, like a lavender-colored card. Uh, Emily <laughs> is green. Hannah is pink. Uh, scenes that involve all four of the PLLs are yellow. And uh, flashbacks or um, uh, Allison-centric storylines are hmm. on white cards. So, ladies and gentlemen, adjust your fan fiction accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's funny because when we first started doing this podcast, we actually didn't do it purely as a recap. We would break apart the characters individually and say, like, well, this is the Arya stuff in the episode. This is the Hannah stuff, etc. Um, eventually, we found that the show got too complex for that. There are just too many characters that had different scenes together that it didn't make sense to do that anymore. Um, but, yeah, that's interesting to th- hear that you guys kind of have the the characters playing their own arcs and then kind of mix them together with everything else. Yeah, that's that's the blend and um it's really helpful to us because the different colors do help us track the story throughout. Sometimes we will we will break a story that feels really good to us and makes sense. And then when we've got it all blended, we'll realize, "Oh, it's it's been several scenes since we've seen Hannah or mm-hmm. mm, Hannah's a little light in this act. Are we missing a step in her story?" Mm. Um, are we not servicing some other part? So it asks us to kind of sit back and take another look at the story overall to make sure we're not missing anything. And when that episode is fully blended, that is when it's the writer, uh, the, the writer who's assigned to the episode. That is when it is their turn to sort of step away from the room and begin to put fingers to keyboard. Mm. Uh, and then the, the process, uh, to script is about, oh, I'd say it's about three weeks. Uh, first with a synopsis where each, each girl's story is written out in a paragraph, just a prose mm-hmm. paragraph. Um, that goes through several rounds of notes from the writer's room and then the studio and the network. Then we move on to outline, where each scene is written in the order that, the epi- uh, that it appears in the episode, and it's about a paragraph describing the action of the scene, the wants and needs of the characters, whatever important mystery clues are to be found in that scene it's it's like a you know it's like reading a short story almost um and our outlines typically are among the more uh detailed that i will i have come across so that when you go to script you really really know what your script is about not only from a plot standpoint but also from a character and an emotional standpoint Mm -hmm. um that outline goes through a few rounds of notes and then the writer goes off for about seven days and comes back with a writer's draft Mm -hmm. and that again a few rounds of notes and uh, hopefully it is at the end of that process, it's ready for a production draft and it should line up with being turned in uh, right on the first day of prep. So everybody's got a fresh draft of the script when the week of prep begins before we shoot. Um, so we were very interested here that you were talking about that you, you get paired with a director even before you possibly start writing. Like what is the working relationship between you and a director on, on one of your episodes? Well, um, each writer, uh, as you go into prep, you kind of, I mean, you, you a little bit put on your producer hat and, and you are there to, um, be a voice, um, of direction for the episode. So there's a week's worth of meetings with you and your director and various department heads discussing in detail each department's work on the episode, uh, props where, which is the most fun because it's <laughs> just show and tell of every, single little thing that you've called for in your script. If Spencer grabs her school bag, you've got, you know, three choices of bag to, to mm. choose from. If, uh, you know, someone, uh, uh, if there's an important clue in a, in a lunchbox, you've got multiple options to look at. Um, if there's a, you know, a gun or a dead body, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you get to see, you know, what what what's the gun going to be, and and hopefully, uh, you know, you'll walk in and and see a dummy arm of Mrs. Delorentis's partially decomposed arm that'll be <laughs> sticking up out of the ground. <laughs> um, the same goes with hair and makeup, with wardrobe, and also with our production designers uh, talking about the sets because you know inevitably there the girls go a sleuthing somewhere, and occasionally that calls for a new set. And so, you know, there are discussions around how that set will work both for the camera and for the narrative. Hmm. Um, in terms of working with the director, you, well, I, t- I typically, I should say, I typically want to create space for the director to put their stamp on the episode and really bring their visual storytelling into play while also keeping in mind sort of the greater story that is at stake for the whole season mm-hmm. um, and reminding them of the things that as a journeyman that's coming in just for one week of prep, they may not have a hundred percent of a handle on because they're not, they're not there all along. Directors come and go. They're only with us for about three weeks total. Hmm. Do you guys ever have to do anything where it's like, let's make sure we get like, say this character's reaction shot. Just, you know, that might be important later, anything like that? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, there is a specific meeting for that that happens at the end of the prep week called the tone meeting, mm. um, which is just the writer sitting down with the director. Um, Lisa typically will sit in on that meeting with us, Lisa uh, Cochran, our line producer, and we will go scene by scene and discuss the emotional tone of the scene, point out any specific insert shots that we may need. We will talk a lot about larger relationship arcs, again, just to remind the director, oh, these two people broke up three episodes ago. So (laughs) remember that this scene should be imbued with that feeling of, I broke up with you and haven't seen you in three weeks. (laughs) You know, all all that little detail, who's suspicious, who's not, how suspicious they should be. Sometimes, you know, with people that come in and out on our stage, uh, there's always a question mark over their head. Even if we mm-hmm. really lay a lot of groundwork in the words to say, you know, this is a clean, good-hearted person with no ill intent. Uh, there's no such thing in Rosewood. You just have to wonder. Um, and so, you know, pointing out, you know, things like that, like just be be certain to present this person in the most non-suspicious light possible. <laughs> <laughs> or alternately, you know, turning up the levels uh, and, and watching, hey, last week we revealed a little bit of dirt on this guy. Can you make sure that this week we ratchet it up a little bit more so that we're more suspicious of him? Make sure you cut to that that shifty glance he gives or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> Got to get that shifty glance. <laughs> um, so we want to talk about some more specific episodes and stuff like that and bits from them. But first, is there just a favorite episode or a favorite sequence from from your time in the show? Um, you know, I was thinking about that uh, question when I was looking over the sort of pre-interview stuff. And I, I have a favorite sequence from episode 422 cover for me mm-hmm. because of what happened behind the scenes to make that sequence happen. And it's um, it's the whole dream sequence of Spencer, who is just home from rehab and is plagued with what feels like a memory of chasing Allison down and bashing her over mm-hmm. the head with his shovel. First of all, it was just fantastic to shoot. And to watch Troy and out there in the jungle late at night, like just going for it. Right. But also from a production standpoint, there was the slight problem of wardrobe. We were recalling a moment that um, was from the pilot of the episode uh, that night that Allison uh, went missing from the barn. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, Spencer's wearing a very specific red Argyle sweater. And at this point in season four, we were four years out from the pilot and wardrobe had only one copy of that sweater. And <laughs> we were doing this intense flashback with blood splatter and, and lightning and, and wind and, and you don't want to get the hero sweater dirty. But because <laughs> it was four years ago, there was no way for Mandy to purchase mm. another copy of that sweater. So she spent uh, the week of prep and most of the week of production trying to track down a reasonable stand-in for that sweater. Mm -hmm. And everything that she found just wasn't cut in the mustard. The color was wrong. The fit was wrong. So what she ended up doing to preserve the original was going out and buying the sweater. And then with pieces of felt <laughs> and a black Sharpie, oh, wow. creating an argyle pattern on the sweater. <laughs> That read good enough so that when Spencer had it on for that stunt moment, when she hit the bag of blood and the splatter mm. went back on her, it ruined a sweater that was basically disposable. <laughs> That's neat. <laughs> but just the, the lengths that she had to go to to, to make and the, the lengths that she wanted to go to to make it match and to make it right, right. Um, was just one of those things that speaks to how hard everybody works on this show to make it what it is and that it is really a group effort. And I think that uh, one of the things that's inspiring about it is how not only how much fun that's that scene was just to see and to shoot and for the audience, but also uh, fun to see how everybody brings their best to the table on the show. And I think that's why it's done so well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also, I think just the fans, they pay so close attention. You kind of have to, because otherwise somebody's going to point out like, wait a minute, you know, Something's well, up with this flashback. Out the hell out of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, today alone on Twitter, people were obsessing over uh, Charles has a a love thy neighbor poster on the wall of the dollhouse in the what they're calling the soul room, and then Ren also has that on his on his apartment that he different poster, but yeah, it says yeah, love the same thy neighbor. Thing, and people were just jumping on that because Pillow <laughs> fans, I mean, especially in a hiatus, you know, they're <laughs> just, they're trying to keep still? it alive. Yeah, they're just tearing it apart. Mm -hmm. So. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I had a question. Um, you wrote Reality Bites Me, which is a uh, season one, episode five. Uh, this is the episode where Ezra reads his short story, or at least the end of it. Um, mm -hmm. And I've always been struck by how bad Ezra's writing is. I was wondering, is that like, how do you guys come up with that? Is that just like a private joke or uh, like who, who gets to, to write? Like we see some of his writing later on in the Freefall episode. I've always wondered, like, where does also, that come from? Uh, B26, the poem. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a number. It's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I actually did write the tail end of that short story. And, it, you know, we have this this funny argument in the writer's room about presenting the writing of the character because you you don't want to you, you want to let it live in the in the in the audience's imagination. And then anytime mm -hmm. you actually put something before the audience as this is that character's writing, you you open it up to. God, that was cheesy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but I do have to cop to that. That is my bad writing. <laughs> that is my bad writing, not Ezra's. <laughs> uh, so I mean, so what do you think of Ezra's chance as a writer? You think he, you think he has the chops? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, <laughs> we've seen a little bit of his true crime novel. <laughs> uh, we've seen a little bit of his true crime novel, and I, 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 without giving away any spoilers, I think Ezra will have a chance to um really see that dream uh come true in an interesting way okay excellent uh so do ezra and his buddy uh hardy do they still talk 
Oh, you know, I think on, I think they're I think they're still friends on uh, the what what do we call it in Rosewood? My face, face place. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> website page, website yeah. page. Yeah, I think they, I think they like I think they like each other's uh, status updates, and uh, occasionally will you know they'll get into a they'll get into a, a comments section back and forth. <laughs> I mean, it's very you know, Hardy is very busy being a, a lawyer. Right oh now. yeah, yes he is. Genius lawyer. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another thing we notice. Um, this happens in an episode you wrote, and there's kind of other instances as well where the, the security guard, just this kind of random tertiary character, he, he gets on a phone and walks away saying, I didn't pay that much for Lionel Richie when he was Lionel Richie. Um, and there's always these really funny moments that these like very minor characters have. And we're always wondering, like, is that does that go into the script originally or is that something you guys kind of come up with on the set to like, you know, end a scene? Like, how, how do those lines happen for the, the side characters? Uh, you know, those are a process of, of, uh, of rewrites. That's, and, and I think, uh, I, I remember very specifically with that security guard. That was a pitch from Oliver Goldstick, um, <laughs> uh, that came, uh, after I had turned in my writer's draft. And it's just a matter of, you know, you read a draft and sometimes you realize, hey, this person, they're, they're in the background. You know, they're, they're what we call five and under. But they're feeling pretty thin, pretty flim- flimsy. And, you know, someone will kind of pitch something funny for them to say. And if it gets a laugh in the room, we'll give it a try at the table read. <laughs> and if it gets a laugh there, you know, that character's got a, a little something that helps him pop. <laughs> Bacon and cake. That guy. That guy still cracks us up. Um, so I'm very curious because you have some great Peter Hayson scenes in that episode. When you guys were, were creating that character without, you know, talking about larger spoilers down the line. What was your what was your estimation of Peter Hastings? Because, I mean, what what did you guys bring just in the writing for Nolan North to then you know explode into life? Because he's um, he's definitely one of our favorite parts of just the parental aspect. Yeah, and okay. Nolan just Nolan just brings such a great menace. Yeah, uh, which is funny because he is one of the funniest cats ever. And so whenever the camera's not rolling, he's cutting up and he's making <laughs> everybody laugh. And then as soon as you're rolling, he turns into Peter, Dark Lord Hastings, <laughs> um, you know, and he's all eyebrows and scotch. I think that Peter is a man who loves his family very much, but from this very competitive place, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that's what drives a lot of uh, that character's, a lot of his actions is just this need to keep up this facade that we are the best. Hmm, interesting. And uh, in any given scene, like, if you had to estimate, like, how many glasses of scotch has Peter Hastings, like, just had, like, earlier in the day? Personally, for me, I feel like Peter Hastings has, I feel like he's the kind of guy who comes home and has exactly two. <laughs> okay. Um, except for those weird dark nights of the soul where Spencer comes down and finds him in a dark kitchen. <laughs> and on those nights, he's he's deep in his cups. He's very worried for his daughter's welfare. And he's kind of having an extra scotch or two. And thinking about um you know putting their allowance in an offshore account and sending them off to some <laughs> european country with no extradition treaty <laughs> just to be on the safe side <laughs> uh related to that <laughs> do you think we'll ever see mike montgomery's favorite restaurant sausage heaven or does he not go in there anymore since he started really you know working out <laughs> <laughs> well you know you still need protein okay uh, mm-hmm. he may not eat the bun anymore at sausage heaven um <laughs> I I feel like I feel like that's 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 one of Mike's private things, you know, like like basketball practice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. lacrosse practice when we go for weeks on end, never <laughs> seeing Arya's brother whose bedroom is right next door. I think Sausage Heaven is one of those places that he goes when he needs a little mic time. 
Gotcha. Nice, nice. Um, so let's say if if you had to eat at Rosewood in summer in Rosewood, where would you want to eat at? Like the Apple Rose Grill or? Uh, oh, you know, I have I have a really specific answer for this. Mm-hmm. I, I would uh, if it were a if it were a lunch, I would go to the Apple Rose Grill. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Their rosemary lemonade is legendary. <laughs> I have uh, a mason jar. Potato fries. Okay. Uh, but for dinner, I would actually go to Mona's favorite restaurant, Reed Gauche. Oh, uh, is it also also No Khan's favorite restaurant? Yes, yes, uh, that is where I would go for dinner. I feel like I feel like it's a little dark. It's got a little mystery to it. I think that's a great dinner spot. Okay. Uh, you wrote a. I was going to butcher the French. Just suis un ami in season one, which it really felt like a like a pivotal starting point for for some of the relationships in the show, like Emily and Paige, Spencer and Toby, Hannah and Caleb. So we were kind of curious, like, what was your thoughts, or like just the the general like writer's thoughts, like moving in that process, like that kind of the foundation, the starting point of some of those pairings, you know? Well, yeah, and that was very very early in the show, so we were uh, we were still figuring out who these characters were and um in the moment i don't think we necessarily knew what what their end games were but we knew that we wanted to start mixing it up and bringing these new characters together hmm. and uh i remember on that show or on that particular script kind of nailing the page and and the page of it all hmm. and going i i remember i really overwrote uh the spencer and toby um <laughs> and uh went way down the mystery hole because i was i was super into uh spencer's sleuthiness if you will mm-hmm. um and her intelligence and I, I that is what i latched onto with that character and it took some it took a couple of different passes to get that scene to the point at which it became a real launching point for what is you know one of the show's sort of favorite ships if you will mm-hmm. uh hannah and caleb were pretty easy because it was so it was so capery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I just I just had a great amount of fun giving them this really interesting, dark, if you will, meet cute. <laughs> Where we, we kind of understood Caleb on a new level by the end of that episode. But that was that was really easy because the caper was so much fun to write. Mm-hmm. And would you say that's kind of where you guys started to notice the chemistry between uh, Troy and Keegan Allen? I think that was the first time they really had scenes together where they spoke at all. Yes, that was one of their their first big moments. We definitely noticed the chemistry between them, and I think, I think you know, Troyan is such a fantastic actress that she just elevates everybody she's in a scene with. Mm-hmm. And then also at that point, knowing Toby's fate in the books, which you know Toby doesn't survive book two, right? Yeah. Uh, so he is a real uh, the first real diversion from that narrative that we took was keeping that character alive and around and then putting him with Spencer Hastings. Keegan is just such a special spirit and was such a friend of the show that those things made us just want to keep writing for him. And we didn't want to give this uh, sweet, soulful character that he was creating the same fate that he suffered in the books because he Mm -hmm. goes out, you know, looking like a bad guy in book two. Yeah, he's uh, not definitely like like the the Jenna thing, it was there's no reversal. I remember from the book, it, like he really was the one instigating it with Jenna. He's basically yes. just kind of a scumbag. Yeah, he was a little bit of a he was a little bit uh, scuzzy <laughs> to to the point where I think I've read numerous times Sarah Shepard had said that that would be the one thing from the show. If she had to do one thing, she would bring back Toby. She would bring Keegan Allen into the books in some way if she could. If she could, yeah. Yes. Keegan Allen really has brought something very special to that character. 
Um, and, and I think it is, it's the strength of, of just his, his personality and his loveliness and the ways in which he kind of brought Toby out of his shell and turned Toby from this retiring, almost Boo Radley type character to, I think for the large part, a real kind of moral center for Spencer and, and such an opposite from her, uh, uh, kind of murky home life. Mm-hmm. I think that's a real mm-hmm. testament to, to Keegan. And, and I think that's why we, you know, keep him around. Well, speaking of the literary, like, references like are you a big fan of catcher in the rye along with toby and spencer you know i actually am not <laughs> a huge fan of catcher in the rye um I, it's, I read that book very early in 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 like middle school because i heard it was i heard it was banned mm-hmm. and i kind of wanted to get in on well okay then what's that all about uh but i found that i actually did not relate to holden caulfield that much hmm Interesting. Are there any characters on the show you think that are reminiscent of Holden Caulfield or, you know, for, for me, if I had to pick one, I would actually pick Jason De Laurentiis. Interesting. You know, cause I think he and Holden probably come from the same kind of background. And, uh, you know, we've, we've learned a lot about Jason's past and I think he is, uh, sort of a poster child for disenchanted youth. <laughs> <laughs> he was high for like eight years yeah you know maybe not as many uh uh hookers as holden caulfield but uh <laughs> right definitely liked his drink for a while there <laughs> yeah he started off as kind of a uh mini peter hastings and then he he went away and he came back very different <laughs> very different yeah <laughs> um so in father knows best in season two mona has this great line about being a terrible liar and uh, so obviously by then you knew she'd be a because obviously you probably knew that going into season two, but in the books, but like when you knew like factoring, like crafting in season two, like, like what was it like pushing that character along through that groundwork? I mean, because I think from our experience, like the pilot, that was our number one guest, knowing nothing about the books, we guessed had to be Mona. And then, you know, you guys did a great job over the course of the next two seasons, like making us waver on that on that that certainty so what was it like to then kind of ramp her back up to organic you know aha moment at the end of season two yeah we we did know we were we were building towards that reveal and it was a constant temperature check of how how bad how evil how Mm -hmm. questionable how suspect can she appear Mm -hmm. at any given moment given that we want to have the aha moment be just that so it was you know finding moments to lay stuff in and always being aware of when it was too much too soon Mm -hmm. too on the nose you know really keeping an eye on that throughout the season script to script episode to episode even not only in in script but also in in cuts and in performance you know every once in a while going back in and using a different take because the you know the look on her face was too leading or too sinister. Mm. And we <laughs> didn't want to tell that much in that moment. Right. But Janelle Parrish is fantastic. Cause even when she's, you know, at her meanest, you still like, you, you just love it. Like it's delicious. You want to eat more of it. I mean, like I think the <laughs> cruelest would be some of the comments towards Lucas, you know, during the lock in and stuff like that. But there's something so infinitely watchable about her and all of her various faces that she puts on. Oh, absolutely. I think it's because you, I think a lot of people can relate to her backstory. Yeah. Um, you know, having been the object of derision herself and watching the complex repercussions of that, the way that it plays out, the way that she can, on the one hand, enact that same meanness on other people, you know, and go from bullied to bully. 
Mm-hmm. And then also the ways in which she just unapologetically has learned to fend for herself, come what may. Mm-hmm. So going into season three and beyond, was there a specific moment when you guys kind of realized that the the timeline was getting a little bit magical uh, because uh, we're we're still in October, November, uh, you know, episode after episode. Was, was there any like a uh, moment where you realized that or did it just kind of happen? We realized it and tried to not draw too much focus mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I constantly joke that it's it's June timber and <laughs> all the time. <laughs> it's, you know, never quite cold, never quite hot. Never right. quite summer or vacation. Yeah. Always just vaguely school year-ish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do sit down to think about it, it really, it's a lot happens in three weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of like, uh, what were some of your favorite Paulines that, that you could actually talk about that might have gone the way of uh, Strawberry Patch Lane? <laughs> Strawberry Patch oh, Lane. And just in case anyone doesn't, could you, could you explain Strawberry Patch Lane to us? Just in case yeah. anyone doesn't know. Yeah, I'll start there. Strawberry Patch Lane, it's uh, sort of writer's room parlance for um, a pitch that is just too over the top for Rosewood. Mm-hmm. We say, well, you know, if this was Strawberry Patch Lane a couple towns over, that would totally happen. But not <laughs> in Rosewood. That's just too much for Rosewood. Um, and so it's where over the top pitches, Strawberry Patch Lane is where over the, over the top pitches go to die or be acted out on some other fictional girls. When I was thinking about this, uh, it's funny because my initial reaction to Melissa faking her pregnancy, I I stood up and shouted Strawberry Patch. Like I was, <laughs> I was like, "Are we crazy that we're gonna say this girl? Are we insane?" But I was sort of on the far end of the spectrum, thinking it was just pure nonsense, and <laughs> eventually came around to it. And I think I think the way that we played out that story played out quite well because mm-hmm. um, I think that was kind of a banner season for Melissa is Cray Cray. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a lot of fun Melissa that season. I think in general, it's funny because the other things that come to mind are, and I'm an avid reader of the books. I have read uh, every single one. And, and I, mm. every once in a while, will pitch moments from the books uh, as jumping off points for story of our own, mm. just to just to keep it, you know, keep it fresh. Um, but I think it's often uh, I will pitch things from the book that are a little too strawberry patch for the rosewood that we've created in the show and the ways in which we have diverted from the books. So that's kind of, yeah, I, I that's, that's where, what's strawberry for me is, is those things from the books that are great on the page, but don't at all work in the TV version of Rosewood. <laughs> if I were to count out specifics, I would say Emily's ding dong ditching her baby. I don't know <laughs> if you guys have read the books at all, but there is a, there is a major plot point around Emily, a secretly having a baby over a uh, summer vacation and then ding dong ditching it. Wow. And then the books, um, Arya discovers that Noel's, Noel Khan's dad is a crossdresser. No. <laughs> yeah, I knew about the baby. I didn't know that she doorbell ditched it. Oh wow. yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but I mean, Arya gets the full on art theft in the books. She calls the PLLs up and says, "Hey, I need your help. Can't tell you what until they get in the car." And then while they're driving over, explains, <laughs> "Remember how I went away this summer? It's because I was pregnant and I had this baby while working at a fish and chip shop, and I need for it to live somewhere nice. Let's wow. leave it here." Wow. Um, so uh, speaking of the parents, uh, we were just noticing in, in the Mona Mania, Mania episode, Byron just ruins the plot of the movie that Ari is watching. Um, <laughs> we also wondered, like, is that like, what's up with Byron there? Is he just that kind of guy who will ruin a movie for you? Or is he just getting back at Arya? <laughs> um, I think I, I think Byron was not intentionally 
ruining the movie for Arya, but looking at that scene through Arya's eyes, because it really was a point in the season where we were seeing uh, Byron through Arya's eyes and her growing suspicion of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, I think that's, you know, kind of where that, that moment of her dad just kind of ta- casually tossing out a little bit of a spoiler uh, resonated with her in this much more nefarious way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I actually have to thank Joe Doherty for the, uh, for that uh, pitch, his encyclopedic, movie brain uh, helped me choose from a list of old titles that we could use for free of um, the footage that she was watching. And he kind of called out uh, that particular movie title because of that plot point. And it ultimately worked its way into the dialogue uh, (laughs) and helped us make Byron creepy for those few episodes when we needed to be suspicious of him. Right. Yeah. Byron's just like, Oh, by the way, Aria, Charles is a later. I mean, it feels like you've done a lot with the uh, the Montgomery family who have their own very unique dynamic amongst all the families in the show. Do you feel like maybe you have like a special handle on the Magnificent Montgomerys or do you just find yourself drawn to them? Or is it just kind of how it how it how it works out when you're breaking the stories and getting assigned scripts? It's it's a little it's a little bit of luck of the draw and how it works out uh, when and how we get to include uh, families and family stories. Sometimes it's really appropriate to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the story doesn't call for a lot of family involvement. It calls for a lot of referring to, you know, sort of off-screen parents. And so I think it is a little bit luck of the draw that I've gotten to write the Montgomery family stories that I've gotten. I think my own experience, I'm, I'm probably much closer to, uh, to the Marin household. Um, and, you know, being raised by a single parent, that's, I think, I think that's the one that's most close to my own personal situation that I can draw from. So uh, Andrew, as a character, he kind of starts off as like the Clark Kent to Toby's Bruce Wayne there. Um, was he one of the characters you wanted to bring out of the books? Because um, I know he's he's much more prominent in the books. Was was that one of the, the plot lines you wanted to bring out? I, I, I did. I really um, I was I was drawn to the Andrew character in the books and, and that storyline with Spencer. Um, and I at the time we needed someone to sort of be an alternative for Spencer uh, so I, I pitched Andrew not necessarily because of the way his plot develops in the books, but because his character was someone who could uh, really keep up with Spencer and mm. in certain ways be a more likely and expected choice for her uh, versus Toby kind of coming from a slightly different family and a different dynamic than the Hastings. And I kind of we were we were looking at really giving Spencer a taste of you know, what would it be like if she ended up kind of, you know, marrying, marrying a guy who was, who was her equal, if you will, Mm -hmm. or not marrying, Mm -hmm. but, you know, involved with. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, it was his character traits that sort of made him leap off the page and into the world of PLL. When we first brought him on screen, he really was there for, you know, the arc of a few episodes, but he, kind of resurfaced when we were breaking Spencer's um, Adderall abuse story uh, mm-hmm. in a subsequent season. And it seemed like an interesting place to bring him back into our world. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's just, you know, he, he keeps bubbling up. He keeps bubbling up. And as long as, uh, as long as uh, Brandon Jones is available, you know, I think um, Andrew may, you know, be on screen again in the future. <laughs> So are there, like Andrew, any particular non-main characters, non, you know, the main quartet or, or Mona or Allison of the characters on the show that you really like writing for or exploring? Like your Andrews, your Noel Kahn's, what have you? Hmm. Uh, I, well, um, Noel Kahn's a fun one. Uh, <laughs> Seth Creep. 
he's such a creep. I just love him. He's such a creep. <laughs> um, going deep, deep, deep down. I, like, I always enjoy an opportunity to see Officer Barry Maple on screen. Yes. <laughs> yes. In terms of a one-off, I had a really great time writing Blind School Sam. Um, oh, right. Oh, yeah. Uh, Spencer went to a sleuthin. Um, and most recently, I had a lot of fun writing Eddie Lamb and Big Rhonda when Aria was uh, slipping <laughs> around Radley. They were both, you know, Joe Doherty did such a wonderful job of introducing Eddie into our world when Spencer was in Radley mm-hmm. and creating this really interesting character. And I loved the challenge of coming back to that guy who was so clearly sketched out by Joe and, and trying to approach that character, mm. you know, kind of from my point of view and, and, and hopefully giving him even a little more life. And mm. on my wish list, one I never got to write for and wish we could find a way to bring him back. Cause I just enjoyed him so much. It was creepy Harold from the lost woods resort. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> he was just so much fun. And I, I just, I wish I could write him. <laughs> <laughs> was it the way to leave off? He's like on the run after being the janitor at the school being the janitor at the school and having a little bit of a crush on mona yeah mm-hmm. a little bit of a pervy crush on mona <laughs> <laughs> are there any characters on the show where you kind of can say well that that was that's the closest to me as a teenager you know like any that that remind you most of, of who you were when you were younger well you know i i am i am 43 years old almost mm-hmm. um and uh one of the things that attracted me to the show was the friendship of the four girls because I am at this age in my life. Uh, I'm still very close with a, a, a small group of friends from high school. And so I sort of understand um, and, and value those friendships that see us through our darkest times. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that about these four girls and it's hap- it's happening in this very heightened way. Uh, but that's what, that's what originally drew me in, in reading the script. And then when I saw the pilot for the first time, um, and that is kind of what keeps me keeps me coming back. So in the academic decathlon, like inquisition between Mona and Spencer, there were a lot of questions posed of those two girls. Were those just things that you had fun researching or is that the kind of acknowledgement just always exists in your head waiting to come out? <laughs> I do carry a lot of useless knowledge in my brain. Um, <laughs> that was 50 50. Um, I, I was some of those questions are things that I knew or knew a little bit about Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 even just driven by personal um personal life experience that i thought oh uh, what would be a fun quest and then other stuff was um i did actually research just to give a breadth of knowledge that was supposed to be covered in that and also that was i believe that was the first episode i worked on with norman buckley Mm -hmm. and he 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 came in really kind of give me the business about like academic decathlon like How's that going to be exciting? Like, <laughs> he rode me for an entire week of prep, really being like, you know, how are we going to do this so that it's not the lamest episode ever? I and, think it's one of the greatest episodes you guys have done in a well, lot of ways. Had a really great time with it, and and you know, part of it was just me, based on that, wanting to come up with questions and create and craft those scenes uh, in a way that he could kind of go to town with them visually, mm-hmm. you know. And ultimately, we found we we found a way to to get there, and I think he really did run with it. And and you're right, I think he did end up making it a very visually dynamic uh, episode for something that is basically two people sitting at a table answering questions. <laughs> Yeah, the staging of it with Andrew like sitting in front of his acolytes behind him is very it's like an inquisition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the lighting was great, the music was fantastic. It it really did turn out 
to be something quite special. <laughs> so um, one of the episodes we really enjoyed was Crash and Burn Girl, which is uh, kind of the the first time Toby and Caleb, we call them the, the Hardy Bros. Ah, uh, yes, they got a big laugh from me the first time I heard it. <laughs> yeah, they, they team up for their own adventure. Uh, we just wanted to kind of hear more about that team up in particular. It seems like you've done a few with Toby and Caleb now. Like, uh, what kinds of uh, hijinks do those guys get up to, you think, off screen? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. There were two sort of uh, different reasons that led to that episode and how it was created and how that pairing kind of jumped off in particular. Um, the first was, you know, we were by season four really talking about, you know, what are ways to throw interesting characters together four seasons in who haven't had scenes together mm. uh, and, and what would be some creative ways to break story that would allow us to kind of crash these new characters together that we don't normally see paired up on screen. Mm-hmm. So from the story standpoint, I, I as I was approaching the breaking of that episode, I was kind of like, oh, hey, maybe I'll maybe I'll see if there's some some story here for these two guys. <laughs> uh, and then from a very practical production standpoint, that episode was part of a double up where we shoot two episodes simultaneously over the course of one seven day production schedule. Okay. And the trick of it requires us to. um for each episode, build a day's worth of work that doesn't involve any of the girls mm-hmm. so that they are available to be in their scenes where all the girls are together in the other episode. Okay. Um, so it's this, it's this, it's this, the whole week is just this because we have two sets going, we have two uh, crews going, um, and the actors are shepherding themselves back and forth in time, if you will, between two episodes. So in the morning, they may work in an episode and then in the afternoon they'll work on the, the episode that will air before it. Mm. And so they have to sort of remember where they are in the timeline between these two episodes. I don't know how they keep it all straight, <laughs> but creating this little adventure for these two helped with just the physical needs of production so that it, we can still have episodes where it feels like the girls are in touch, touch with each other and not siloed off mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. separate. Hmm. Um, and you know, I think we do continue to try and find ways to, to do things like the Hardy, the Hardy bros in, in a way that feels organic to the story as, and, and wherein the characters can really inform what's going on with each other, as opposed to just randomly kind of, you know, throwing, what would be, ha- what would happen if Melissa ran into Pam <laughs> at the corner market? Like, right. that, you know, yeah. but I think it also, it, it was fascinating because at first to us, that pairing was absurd in all the greatest ways. But it was also, it imbued, like, because, you know, otherwise you would think Toby has no friends in the world other than Spencer. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, and same thing for Caleb, you know, except for his clients, for his ringtone business. And so seeing the two of them, like, the idea that they have a social life together was amazing. But, you know, it was also, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to watch the way the male characters are crafted, like, away from the girls, like, their kind of perspective back on the mystery. Because they're basically handling liar business, yeah. you know, on their own. And then, of course, at the end, Spencer has to kind of evaluate the process as it should be. <laughs> has there ever been a time where you guys like you wanted a certain character, but they weren't the actor wasn't available or there's a, some sort of limitation where you kind of had to work around that? Oh, that happens all the time mm. um, with story. And that, that goes back to, you know, being soft set, because that's one of the production concerns that can happen. Um, you'll want to tell a story and the actor's just not available. And you have to find a way to tell it with, with someone else, you know, with, with uh, one of the other PLLs or with a parent or 
with the other parent, which sometimes, you know, uh, especially in uh, those Hastings scenes, mm-hmm. uh, a Veronica story and a Peter story can play themselves out in very different ways. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that does happen from time to time. Just the actors not avail. And, and sometimes we just try and do it with the specter of that person when they are a suspect. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be very effective actually not having them on screen, but raising the specter of them throughout the course of an episode. And suddenly you begin to feel like, hmm, maybe they are a... Like like Toby in season three. Where he just yes. falls off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah we, we especially thought of that when we thought of the Nigel Wright character in Crash and Burn Girl. And he's he's talking to somebody off screen at the end of the episode. And you just see that, that dark pair of sunglasses that's so <laughs> familiar. Yeah. Not available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not available. But with a dark pair of sunglasses and a steaming hot cup of tea, you get an essence of Jenna. Yeah. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's enough. And that's its own kind of scary tea. Um, <laughs> so in season four, we meet Jesse, the school counselor. Is he actually an undercover cop? <laughs> oh, Jesse, the counselor. That, that was such a good idea. But I think a little bit of a cup runneth over situation. Mm. Um, we wanted to create this character, um, especially because we were sort of taking Ezra out of the school mm-hmm. um, and wanted to have another sort of adult figure for the girls to interact with while they were at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think ultimately, as the season was going on, we we began to discover that we just we just had so much story to tell that a lot of the story that we thought we wanted to tell with this with this counselor character, we ended up not not having room for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Another interesting relationship on shows, Hannah and Holbrook, um, and they're kind of, at least briefly, they, they bonded in season four there. What was it like kind of crafting that new development? <laughs> well, spe- specifically their love of, um, mystery of, fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mystery fiction. You know, that was, that was a beautiful, uh, stroke of detail again, um, that I think Joe Doherty started off in the beginning of their, their interactions. Um, and so it was just my pleasure to, you know, follow up and, and continue the, uh, continue the, the, the back and forth that they had in the aftermath of that illicit kiss. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you have any like particular favorite A stunt or prank, you know, hijinks that A has been up to, performance art that A is, you know, unleashed on oh. the girls? We, we, we marvel constantly that they're, after 120 episodes, that we're still even able to come up with. Some of those A moments that just, you know, shock us or gross us out. So over the years, from one of my own episodes, the the worms in their Chinese food, (laughs) I think it's just a favorite of mine. That was an episode shot by Chris Grismer. I loved the tiny, tiny note in Hannah's teeth. Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Who is this monster? Yeah. Who is this monster? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Lastly, from a just from a production standpoint. Uh, a driving that car through Emily's living room, um, <laughs> getting the opportunity to write that into my episode because that came about actually from a very mundane, uh, production concern. The set that we use for Emily's house out on the back lot mm-hmm. had some foundation issues and some termite issues. And so <laughs> the lot facilities manager was coming to us basically saying, we have to destroy that set. And rebuild it and we'll rebuild it exactly the same. But because of all these issues, we've got to take the whole thing down. So if you want, it <laughs> might be a great time to pull a stunt because the very, you know, we, we, we've got it scheduled for demolition. Mm. Uh, so Lisa came to Lisa Cochran came to the writer's room and let us know this. And as 
uh, the lot facility sort of settled in on their date, it soon became very clear that I would get to write that episode. Nice. Uh, and so it was just such a joy to have like the gift of that big, big set piece just laid in my lap. And it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And it was a one and done situation. You know, we couldn't, we, we couldn't go back and, and do it over one take. The car had to go flying through that window and, uh, and it was it was really really spectacular to watch. Awesome. Spe- I was saying, speaking of which, uh, who can we credit with the brilliance of act normal bitch? <laughs> um, that was a group. That was a group effort. Uh, Maya Goldsmith was uh, writing that episode and was all about having something pop up mm-hmm. on those those little news screens. You know mm-hmm. that little that little uh, ticker tape thing in the hallway. And I think I can't remember who it was in the room that was that pitched the actual words but i know that i remember it getting a huge laugh and, <laughs> and we were like that's it that's the stuff that's what it's got to be well and i love that you guys brought it back in season five yeah oh yeah callbacks <laughs> are always fun mm-hmm. yeah i was recently rewatching uh hot for teacher and and i really noticed that like that's the one where ezra is just like super creepy and we, we finally see that he has his own little lair um, and it really seemed to me that Arya was like not consciously aware, but maybe subconsciously. Like she kept trying to kind of resist and leave, and he kept having to talk her out of it. I was wondering, was that something you're going for? That like maybe like her unconscious mind was starting to put the pieces together. Well, you know, at the time they were also were in a tough relationship spot, mm-hmm. and I think I think on the surface that really is what we were going for. I think it, it would be interesting to go back and look again and see if what you're picking up was. You know, just kind of sub subtext that bled over mm-hmm. uh, into the mystery of it all, based on where their actual relationship was. You know, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know. I would have to go back with new eyes and 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 see it again. But I, I love that when uh, people do approach the episodes and bring other interpretations to the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that is. Um, I think it's just a testament to uh, how much fun there is to be had and how much fun we're having. Right. But mm-hmm. anything that's on that screen is working on multiple levels. And and in fact, that, you know, there are sort of individualized interpretations of what's happening on the screen outside of the story we intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in fan speak, whenever people want to kind of quickly refer to that time with Ezra and his, his creepiness, you know, before you knew he was just a writer trying to do a book. I think one of the, the quick, easy words they use is chickpeas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What was it like just figuring out what ingredient? is missing <laughs> from Ezra's like sinister stew. Uh, well, uh, tagine, in fact, <laughs> I am something of a cook. Okay. Uh, okay. And, so, and, and I think, I think people have called me out on the amount of food uh, <laughs> in my own episodes. And in fact, it's almost a crutch. Sometimes I find when I am writing a scene and I don't a hundred percent know what it's about, mm-hmm. default food banter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll get, called on that and have to rewrite the scene so that it's about something else mm-hmm. something real <laughs> <laughs> for that particular moment i just i i wanted ezra sort of in you know because he's supposed to be taking Arya away for this meaningful getaway and a little bit of reconnection time so i wanted him going a little over the top with this dinner and we know that Arya is a vegetarian yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so i immediately went you know tagine and if you're gonna make a tagine with no meat in it chickpeas is probably the most middle eastern ingredient that you can involve that's most crucial to the tagine turning out well because <laughs> otherwise it's just you know it's just it's just hot spices and couscous 
So, uh, not wanting to spoil any like possible upcoming plot stuff, uh, but since PLO is so very good with its literary references and its allusions, would there be any kind of like summer reading that you would suggest to to fans? Hmm. Reading or viewing? Yeah. During this time off, you know, off the top of my head, uh, I'm gonna say, <laughs> I'm gonna say Sybil. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that old TV movie starring uh, Sally Field. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just I think it's worthwhile for everyone to read a little Shirley Jackson. Okay. 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 We have always lived in the castle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here, wondering, you know, if you had the opportunity to say run your own show with, is there any particular property that's always interested you, or kind of like a you know dream project? Mm, My goodness, it's uh, it's well, my resume. Uh, plants me firmly in the teen world and the genre world. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I've worked on has had teenagers, and everything I've worked on has had some element of genre to it, be it a murder mystery, be it vampires, be it boys with no belly buttons. <laughs> um, and I actually enjoy that quite a bit. So, you know, I think the easy route would be to continue uh, on this path by creating something that was teen and had some sort of element of genre to it. I think that's, you know, I think that's where I'll be for a while. Okay. Because uh, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay at it. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of other interests though as a writer, and uh, so you know I wouldn't be opposed to really trying to create a show that maybe casts me in a different light as a writer. We'll see once those opportunities or actualities and when they arise, you know mm-hmm. <laughs> what that looks like. <laughs> I mean, I also uh, I grew up in Colorado. Um, and I, uh, I have family that has been kind of in the Western United States since the, uh, early 20th century. So I, I do have this, um, this deep and abiding sort of, uh, love for, uh, black cowboy stories, okay. um, which you don't see very often. <laughs> that's, that's the hard sell route for me. I think mm. <laughs> that's not where a lot of people's minds go. <laughs> that would, that would make for a fascinating like show or movie. Um, so if you had to pick just one PLO spinoff idea to be granted life, like what would you choose? What element of the show do you think could just spin off in its own, own whole other world? Mm, its own whole other world. I would like to see where Jenna goes mm-hmm. and what she does. Because I have a feeling she's up to some pretty big shenanigans mm. <laughs> in in her free time when she's going off and getting her sight back and then losing it again mm-hmm. yeah i'd love to i'd love to i jenna's world that's what i'd call <laughs> it i would love to see what she gets up to <laughs> the blind seductress you know it's like yeah. does she do that well it's one of the things on the show we've always talked about too is that there is a whole other perspective of the show which is jenna's where she is this this poor girl who's been victimized by allison and her friends over and, and over again, again. Yeah. yeah over and over yeah yeah, and 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 it's created something of a I don't want to call her a monster, but um, you know, boy howdy, is she tough? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, and and if you remove all of the Rosewood bullcrap, I I I would love to see how a person who's been through what Jenna has been through, how she moves through the world, you know, and how she relates to other people. I'd love to see who she hangs out with when she's not in town. I'd love to see how she gets what she wants, and you know, how she approaches all manner of things. Because right. I know she's doing it from a really, really unique point of view. Well, like Allison said, like how did you, how did you steal Shauna from me? <laughs> she was my acolyte. Like how did you take her? Exactly. Jenna's got some magic. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think those were all the questions we had. Did you have any more, Marco? 
No, no. I just I wanted to thank you so much, Brian. And I also wanted to thank Norm Buckley for just bringing us up to you in the first place and kind of bringing us together. Um, it's It's been such a great talk. We've enjoyed like speaking with you and just kind of picking your brain on PLL. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. And, you know, Norman is such a great friend of the show. And I'm, I'm really, really glad that he uh, pointed me to the way of your podcast because I, I, I've enjoyed everything I've heard. And I love to hear you guys theorize. <laughs> thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.